Welcome to the podcast for Windsor Road Baptist Church. Prepare your heart to receive God's message. After many years on a desert island, a man is finally rescued. You're thinking of Tom Hanks and Castaway. As he stands on the deck of the rescuing ship, the captain says to him, I thought you were stranded there on the island alone. How come I can see three huts on the beach? Well, replies the castaway, that one there is my house. And that other one there is where I go to church. And the third one asks the captain, oh, that's my old church. (laughs) If only church splits were a joke. There's a church where a pastor had spent seven years grooming a guy to take his place. But not long after the handover, this original pastor decided with some influential members of the church to move against the replacement pastor for no reasons, no biblical reasons, and in the most ungodly way. When their attempts failed, the original pastor and 30 members terminated their membership en masse and started a new church. To cut the long story short, a year later, the new church, and this is the new church, decided that it was time to call a new pastor to replace the original pastor. And not because there were any problems, they just thought, okay, it's time to have fresh blood, and that's what they did. Well, the new pastor comes in, and guess what happened? Several months later, the original pastor was added again, leading a movement of people loyal to him to oust the new pastor of the church split. It didn't work. Over 75% of the members voted to stand with the new pastor. And I will not tell you the despicable things that took place after, but all you need to know is that the original pastor and his cronies started a new church. So you have two splits there. This morning, we're going to look at Jesus appointing 12 disciples to help him with his ministry and to continue with it once he was gone. Immediately after he appoints the disciples, he lays out his manifesto. If you like, his list of to be and to do, things for them and all of his followers, regardless of where they come from. His manifesto on how to be and stay as a healthy and flourishing faith community. The order of events is significant. If they are to flourish, if we are to flourish in doing the work that God had called them to do and that God has called us to do, they and we must be a healthy community, unlike the church I just told you about and many more like it. Jesus' manifesto is a roadmap to how, on how to be such a community. His timeless words will unsettle us, will throw us off balance, will grab us by the collar, will make us very uncomfortable and challenge us deeply and profoundly. If Jesus' words don't have these effect on us, then I suggest we're not getting what he's saying or that we're not taking him seriously. So let's get to it. Firstly, Jesus' appointment of a group of men to join him and be his apprentices. This is in preparation for the mission 
to come in Luke chapter 9 and chapter 10, as well as this was his uh, succession plan. Notice, before making one of the most important decisions in his ministry, he spends the entire night in prayers, Luke tells us. This is the only place in the New Testament where an all-night vigil, prayer vigil, is mentioned. Spurgeon writes, one night alone in prayer makes make us new men, change from poverty of soul to spiritual wealth, from trembling to triumphing. Jesus picks out 12 men. The number 12 clearly parallels the, the 12 tribes of Israel. They would be the starting point for a new thing that God is doing on planet Earth, the core of God's renewed Israel. The 12 are divided into three groups of four, with Peter, Philip, James, son of Alphaeus, leading each group. In the first group, we have Peter, often the spokesman for the 12. He's brash. He can be bombastic, outspoken, unlike his timid brother, Andrew. And then we have James and John, brothers, also known as the sons of thunder, most likely because of their tempers. They're all fishermen. In the second group, we have Philip, not Philip the evangelist in Acts 8. Philip was initially a, a disciple of John the Baptist, who subsequently recruits cynical Nathaniel, who also goes by the name of Bartholomew. Surnames were uncommon in those days, so it was quite normal for Jews to have more than one name to distinguish themselves from others of the same name. Matthew is next, also known as Levi, the hated tax collector and Roman collaborator, followed by Doubting Thomas, known as the twin. In the third group, we have James, son of Alphaeus, of whom we know very little. And next is Simon the Zealot, a political nationalist before meeting Jesus. He would have particularly struggled with Matthew, big time. And then we have Judas, the son of James, also known as Thaddeus. And finally, Judas, infamous for his betrayal of Jesus, and the only one not from Galilee. What a motley, ordinary, unimpressive crew that Jesus assembled. They help him and succeed him. They would be proven to be ambitious, they would be proven to be unreliable, fickle, at each other's throat. But Luke tells us that Jesus deploys them immediately to the front line, helping him with his ministry to bring healing and freedom to the masses. You and I wouldn't have picked out this team, but Jesus did. It's very instructional about the grace of God, about the ways of God, the makeup of the team is actually a picture of the church. I hope you realize that. We're a motley crew. We're very ordinary, very, very flawed people, jars of clay. But we have within this jar of clay a precious treasure, the greatest treasure to share with others. And this flies in the face of the celebrity culture we see in the church today. Jesus involves us in his mission purely because of his grace. It has nothing to do with how good we are. Our fruit bearing is only possible by his grace. Our talents, our abilities, our gifts, 
Well, they come from him in the first place. And even then, they're not enough. We need the power of the Holy Spirit, don't we? We need the wisdom of God. We need the strength of God. The second thing that Jesus does is he lays down his manifesto, his to be and to do list for all of his followers. He's essentially a discourse on discipleship. It is a simple but a radical counter-cultural picture of what kingdom life looks like, known also as the Sermon on the Plain. Yes, Jesus loves us. Jesus cares deeply about us, and he receives us as we are. He wants us to come to him as we are, but we also must realize that we need to come to him as he is. He is holy. He's righteous. He's our king. And furthermore, he will not leave us as we are. He does expect us to embrace and live by his manifesto. No exceptions, no excuses. He calls us to embrace and live by his manifesto. It is very possible that this is Luke's summary of Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, at the very least, a condensed version of Jesus' teaching that day. So let's read two segments, beginning with the first, from verses 20 to 26. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of your association with the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how the ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. How are we to stay as a healthy and flourishing faith community? Number one, take an eternal view rather than a temporal view on life. Take an eternal view rather than a temporal view on life. There are four promises or blessings in contrast to four warnings or woes, and they're placed side by side with each other to bring the contrast into a sharper focus. Jesus is not saying that there is virtue in and of itself in being poor and being hungry and being sad and having your reputation ruined because of your faith. Neither is Jesus saying that being rich, well-fed, happy, or having a good reputation is a bad thing. He's not favoring one social class over another. What he's saying is our lives are defined by what is eternal, not by what is temporal. Let's look at the poor and rich, for example. The poor whom Jesus was speaking to in the crowd that day, but who had put their faith in him. Jesus calls them blessed. You are actually blessed even though you are poor. 
without much in your bank account. You're actually blessed because you are in relationship with me. You are citizens of God's glorious kingdom. Their true worth, their true identity are not based on their socio, socioeconomic status, but that they belong to God. The most precious thing that we have on this planet is our relationship with God. As for, rich, as for the rich, God is not against wealth per se. But Jesus once asked, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? The Achilles heel of the rich is their pride and their self-determination. Their riches can blind them to their need for God's saving grace. You see? Our wealth, at best, is temporary. Not only can we not take it with us when we die, but our wealth counts for very little when we stand before God. Only how we pursued it and used it. Was it for his glory or was it for ours? You see. What people say about you, how people treat you now, your circumstances, no matter how bleak and discouraging, they will pass. I'm not minimizing your pain. I'm not min minimizing anyone's challenge in life. But Jesus is saying they will pass. But God, his character, who he is, his promises, his purposes, they will not pass. And this was the reason for Paul's refusal to lose heart in the face of his own suffering, and sometimes very unbearable suffering. He writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 to 9 and 13 to 18, we are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down because of our faith with Jesus but we're never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we're not destroyed. But we continue to preach. We continue doing God's work because we have the same kind of faith the psalmist had when he said, I believed in God and so I spoke. We know that God who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and present us to himself together with you. All this is for your benefit. And as God's grace reaches more and more people, there will be great thanksgiving. So he's thinking eternal. And God will receive more and more glory. That is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them all and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen, for the things we see now will soon be gone. But the things we cannot see will last forever. Don't fix your eyes on the temporal Cast your vision further ahead and see the eternal. Whether you're doing well or not, take an eternal view, not a temporal view on your life. Do not lose sight on that which is unseen but eternal. God himself, 
his kingdom, his glory, his love, his faithfulness, his compassion, his judgment, his promises, his purposes, the good news of eternal life through Jesus' death and resurrection. Everything we are and do is for God's glory and the cause of his kingdom. And sadly, the pastor and his cronies at the start of my sermon who caused so much heartache about, were about their glory and were about their kingdom. Let's read the next passage from 27, verses 27 to 36. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other cheek also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tuning eye. The gift to everyone who begs from me and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? What credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Sinners are capable of doing the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But I say to you, love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he's kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Heavenly Father is merciful. The second thing we must embrace in order to be and stay as a healthy community and flourishing community is to be merciful as God is merciful. Now, we need to tread very carefully and wisely in how we apply Jesus' words in this passage, such as offering your cheek to be smacked or allowing someone to take your tunic, take our tunic from us. It is best to see these illustrations as Jesus' hyperboles to make his point. To be merciful is not to answer harshness with harshness. It's not to answer criticisms with criticism. It is not to answer hurtful words with hurtful words, but to respond in the opposite way we have been treated. When the LTG I'm a part of read this a couple of weeks ago, all of us groaned loudly. You could hear the groan. <laughs> This is so hard because it is everything that we don't want to do. We don't mind loving our friends. We don't mind being kind to those who are nice and those who are deserving, right? We don't mind blessing those who bless us back. We don't mind giving people the good treatment, the loving treatment, provided they do so to us. They reciprocate that. But our enemies, our frenemies, the unlovable, the undeserving, those who have said and done things to have hurt us, those who hate us and curse us, be nice to them, not on your life. To be sure, Jesus is not saying that we are to become doormats. He's not saying that we're to be enablers of abuse. But he's telling us in no uncertain terms, it is not enough as my followers to refrain from retaliating. If you do that, 
You're halfway there. But it's not enough. Being merciful is not just refraining yourself, constraining yourself from retaliating. It is loving them by doing good to them, by blessing them, and praying blessing over them. That's mercy. Not giving people what we feel they deserve. In the same way, God does not give us what we deserve. All right? If God gave us what we deserve, we would not be here. Lord, you cannot be serious. We can't do what you're asking. If that is your response, then I actually believe you're okay. If your response was, sure, Lord, no worries. I can do that. I'd be very concerned for you. I'd be very, very concerned for you if your response was, ho-hum, yes, I can do that. But if you look at this and you grow and you go, God, I, I don't know how this is possible, then I think you're actually okay. Jesus is calling us to a standard of ethics that we have no hope of fulfilling apart from putting our faith in him, apart from relying on the sufficiency of his grace through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. The third thing we are to do if we want to be and remain as a healthy and thriving faith community is to refrain judging like the Pharisees. And you have to read the passage, verses 37 to 42, in your own time. Now, even though Jesus doesn't refer to the Pharisees, I personally think that he has them in mind when he said that, given that he had just taken the Pharisees to task a few verses earlier. In John chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus said this to them, Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. Or in other versions, start judging justly or judge with just, uh, with right judgment. As we heard last week, the Pharisees were incredibly hypocritical, harsh, and self-righteous. So the judging Jesus forbids is not the judgment calls we make in everyday life, but the Pharisee kind where our judgments are harsh, they're condemning, they're devoid of God's grace, compassion, mercy, and truth. The judgment that Jesus forbids is the kind that only God can make because he knows and sees all, including a person's inner hidden motives. If you insist on judging like God, then you better be perfect like God. And I say that again. If you insist on judging like God, if you insist that you have the right to judge like God, then you better be perfect like God. Because otherwise, that same, that same standard you apply to others, God will use it on you when you fail in the same way. Our responsibility, our response is to forgive, not condemn, to be gracious rather than being harsh with our response to those who do and say hurtful things to us, our frenemies, our enemies. So how are we to judge with right judgment? 
by looking at yourself before looking up at others, which is so contrary to what we instinctively do in any relational conflict where we often blame others, don't we? Let's be clear about something. Jesus sees no wrong in us pointing out in others the faults that they may have or areas that we feel we are concerned with. But Jesus says we must begin with ourselves first. These are his words, verse 41. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying, friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log, the plank in your own eye? Hypocrite. First, get rid of the log in your own eye, and then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. This process deals with our tendency to be lax with our own faults, but be completely ruthless and quick in pointing out the faults of others. This process ensures that our hearts are soft and humble toward the person that we have conflict with and gives us a perspective on the conflict itself before we speak to them. Try it. You'll know what I'm saying. When you go through this process, you know, before you speak to them, it will soften you because you will begin to see, honestly, your own heart, your own inadequacy, your own flaws. And so that when you speak to your brother or your sister whom you have difficulties with, you speak on level plane. You don't speak in judgment. So whatever you do, if you have a conflict, the first thing you do is look at yourself. Don't go straight to your brother or to your sister or to your wife or to your husband. It works in all these relationships. Take a moment and look at yourself first. What's happening for you? What's going on for you? What does this conflict expose in your own heart before you seek to address the problems or the issues in someone else's life. And lastly, if we are to be and remain a health, healthy, thriving faith community, we must walk in integrity. Again, read this passage in your own time. But there is such a need for integrity in our witness, isn't there? One of the most common complaints against Christians is what? Our hypocrisy. We say one thing and we do the exact opposite. In Jesus' sermon about knowing a tree by its fruit, Jesus is not saying that true, authentic Christians are incapable of putting a foot wrong with their attitude, with their conduct and behavior. All of us sin. All of us will fail. But in the long run, in the long run, followers of Jesus are qualitatively different or should be qualitatively different. A good tree will ultimately bear good fruit. It is faith alone in Christ that justifies, but the faith that justifies us also transforms us so that our lives grow more and more in alignment with Jesus' manifesto. True followers of Jesus are committed to Jesus' manifesto in word and in deed. They don't pretend about the incongruence. They're bothered by it. They don't ignore the incongruence. They're open about it, humble by it, and see the need to bridge the gap between their beliefs and their lifestyle. 
If Jesus is our Lord, then it follows that as his followers, we submit completely and absolutely to his authority in every area of our lives by listening and obeying him. It is not enough to be hearers of the word. It is not enough to tell the world what you believe in your doctrines. We need to be doers. And that is what the parable about the wise and foolish builder is underscoring as Jesus concludes his manifesto. They cannot be inaction. They cannot be indifference in our response to his manifesto. The point of Jesus' parable is summed up well by a Bible scholar by the name of Buck. Apply yourself to apply my teaching. It is wisdom that stand up when things get tough. Apply yourself to apply my teaching. It is wisdom that stands up when things get tough. So how are we to be and remain and stay as a healthy and flourishing faith community? Number one, take an eternal and not a temporal view in life. Be merciful as God is merciful. Refrain from judging like the Pharisees. And fourthly, walk. Walk in integrity. Brothers and sisters, can you imagine how many conflicts how many church splits could be avoided? How many conflicts could be prevented from escalating? How many conflicts could be resolved if we took seriously to Jesus' manifesto? Can you imagine? I can imagine. I can imagine. So can I encourage us? Let's keep building a healthy and flourishing faith community through the grace of God by embracing his manifesto, your application this week or beyond. Take time and consider Jesus' words in Luke chapter 6, verses 27 to 36 about loving your enemies. In the light of the one enemy in your life, and you have one, I'll be surprised if you don't. At least one enemy, one enemy, one frenemy in your life. Of the three things Jesus tells us to do, that is, to do good to them, to bless them, and to pray for them. Ask Jesus if there's one action or actions he wants you to take in response to your enemy, in response to your frenemy. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you mean what you say, and you say what you mean. There's no way of dissecting those words that we've just heard in the original Greek. Oh, Jesus can't be meaning that. It doesn't matter how you read it. It's very plain. It's very clear for all to see. Lord, we're just trying to weasel our way out of your instructions to us. That's all we're trying to do. We read this and we gloss over it. Or we just simply disregard it. But I pray that this morning you would challenge us and speak to us afresh. That if we claim that you are Lord of our lives, then Lord, it cannot be just mere empty words. It has to be followed up with our choices. It has to be followed up with decisions we make. It has to be followed up with our lifestyle. So I pray you will not let us go scot-free. I pray you will pursue us, hound us, because you love us. 
because it is important that we take seriously your words. Your words bring life. Your words sets us free, you said, if we apply your teaching. And so it is with love in mind that you pursue us, and I ask that you will hound us and pursue us, that you will cause us to reflect this week people whom we struggle with in our front lines, in our marriage perhaps, in relationships, family relationships, that one person, Lord, that we struggle with, the one person we struggle to love, the one person that just rubs the wrong way. Lord, can we pray for them this week? Can we do good to them this week? And what would it look like? Can we bless them this week with our words? What would that look like? Thank you for your gracious words to us. Thank you for pursuing us. Give us wisdom. Give us strength to follow through. As per the words we have heard this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you have been blessed by the message. Windsor Road Baptist Church is a growing intergenerational and international community of people committed to whole life discipleship. Please visit us at windsorroad.org.au to connect with us and to learn more about our church.